G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. It's that time again, time for our final news special of Series 4. And boy, is there a lot of news. We've had a federal election, seen huge VC funding announcements, and we have once again run against the shoals of sexism in tech. That and a lot more on this Twista news special. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Braintree, the easy all-in-one payment solution for your app or website. Welcome to another of our periodic news and review episodes of This Week in Startups Australia. Let me begin by introducing our panelists on this Twisted News special. Laura McKenzie is the Managing Director of Scale Investors and was recently recognized as one of the 100 Women of Influence by the Fin Review. Welcome, Laura. Thanks, Mark. Great to be back. Joining Laura is award-winning freelance journalist Claire Connolly. Claire has written for numerous publications, including the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, The Australian Business Spectator, and PC Mag. Welcome, Claire. Always great to be back. Okay, folks, we have had a federal election, as weird and indeterminate as it was. The one thing we absolutely know is that Wyatt Roy lost his seat, and he was arguably the one person in that entire mob who understood what startups were. Maybe too much. We don't really know. We, you know, the rumors were he didn't really campaign very hard in his seat. You know, we let that stand. But we now have a government that is kind of the same as the government we had before and kind of not. Claire, what are we starting to see emerge from this government in terms of new policy around startups? Uh, There has been very little that's new in terms of policy. I think a lot of what we're seeing come out of the government, unfortunately, comes more out of Tony Abbott's hand book than it does out of Malcolm Turnbull's. How so? Well, obviously, we've seen a a rolling back to some extent of his big fancy ideas boom, Mm -hmm. which on the face of it was designed to stimulate Australia's startup industry. But if you look a little bit more closely at the detail, I think you'll realise that it's, for the most part, some very excellent marketing for corporate welfare. And this has sort of, I think, become a little clearer now where you now have, I think it's the new Minister for Innovation, Greg Hunt, recently returned from destroying the Great Barrier Reef, but we'll leave that. And now, God knows what he'll do to innovation in this country, deciding that, in fact, every business is a startup business and every business needs exactly the same tax credits. I mean, does this mean that there's going to be any money left over for the actual startups? Laura? Well, I think the R&D tax rebates are absolutely the life and soul of technology-based mm-hmm. startups. Um and I, you know, there's been a big push in the community to, to move those towards quarterly payments, mm. um, and that's been been knocked back. I think there is a risk that um, the larger companies will win their way back in to get a lion's share of, of that aspect. But there are some components of the the, the nice, the national in, innovation and science um, agenda that that have come through um, quite strongly, which is around the early stage venture capital limited partnership structure, mm-hmm. which is something that's been around for a long, long time. Um, but in the last year, it's gone from kind of 10 registered early stage venture capital limited partnerships. So I had a look today. There's 21 now that are registered. So, so more than $10 million. So that's at least another $200 million, and that's, probably more. So doubled in a year's time. Yeah. Um, and there's another 27, including our scale fund, that are conditionally registered um, until they reach that, that hurdle amount of $10 million. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of people delving in 
from the fund perspective. And a reason for that might be this added kicker of a 10% cashback that you get under the the new innovation agenda. I mean, it is worth adding, though, that while the early stage venture capital limited partnerships do receive a 10% non-refundable offset, founders need to be wary that the actual provisions of the bill specifically exclude affiliates of a company from seeking tax incentives, which means founders and other people that are in a position of control over a company won't actually qualify. So, so it's only the investors. Yeah, most of, again, when you go through the National Innovation and Science Agenda, um, I kind of did a bit of a forensic investigation into these elements back in March, mm. actually. Um, most, if not all, of the provisions are aimed at investors. That's right. Yeah. Um, they were marketed more as a means of access for founders. And if you're founding a company and you're being told this ideas boom is going to be your bread and butter and it's going to be the only way that mm. your startup is going to get off the ground and then you go into the provisions and find out that actually you're not being offered as much as it seems on the surface, um, I'm just a little surprised it's taken this long. Like, yes, Wyatt Roy has gone. Yes, the ideas boom as we know it is kind of... Dead. The nuts and bolts are starting to come off the car a little yeah. bit. Um, that being said, I don't know why this wasn't addressed a lot earlier. I don't know why more founders aren't actually standing up instead of forming peak bodies to act on their behalf. Um, and I also think that, okay, while I have sat here and been slightly critical of the ideas boom... Um, I also don't think that it's fair to put a government in the corner and say, because Malcolm Turnbull's not being rambunctious enough or not being assertive enough, mm. that the startup community isn't going to survive. If the Australian startup community wants to have an Australian startup community, right. then they need to find a way within their business models to make that happen. Well, and I think the, the thing about this, and you know, I certainly challenged both Husick and White Roy about this at the Above All Human conference. I was like, you know, actually, we're used to this love him and leave him thing. And why are you guys not just going to wander off again when you get bored of this? And I think that's kind of what's happened is they've just gotten bored. Startups were sexy for a little while and now they're bored again and now they're wandering off. And you're right. I think that the Australian startup community is probably this may in fact be the last breakup. <laughs> Right. The next time the phone rings, they may not answer. They may be like, no, actually, I'm going to let that go to voicemail. But if your business depends on a politician picking up the phone, I question the effectiveness of the model. Well, I agree with you, but I don't I don't think that there were any startups that got founded around that. Would you, would you say that there are startups that get founded around that idea of government assistance? Absolutely not. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, but most existing startups that have a hypothesis that they're testing mm. would be beneficiaries of the R&D ta cash tax rebate. Right. Um, and in the absence of seeking external funding, that that's what's keeping a number of them alive. Oh, absolutely. It was keeping my startup alive in its last year of operation. Ma ma arguably, maybe, maybe artificially. Yeah. Well, you can argue artificially, but it goes on your balance sheet and you know you have the money and so therefore you can use the money. So, um, all right. So, is the startup R and is the R and D tax credit substantially unchanged from where it was? Is the problem not that it, it isn't being paid quarterly, or has it actually been taken in from that as well? From a startup's perspective, it's it is largely unchanged. Okay. There's been a lot written in the press, but when you come down to the bare bones. It's exactly the same as it's been for a decade or more. Right. Mainly, it just seems like a lot of people haven't done their reading. Mm -hmm. Well, all of these reports that are coming out this week, I mean, not to toot my own horn, but like we were reporting about this more than a year ago. 
I was certainly not the only person that was across it. And certainly the Australian tech press raised their concerns, I mean, almost 18 months ago now, to say, hey, if you run a startup or if you're planning to run a startup or if you want to be a founder or a CEO at some point, you need to go through and look at this in detail and figure out what this means for your company. Mm. Now, I, I mean... I. I massively respect Ed Husick and I think his piece that was in the paper yesterday was had to be said and it needed to be written. But I, I just think you're creating this sense of frustration and you're, you're, you're shedding light on an issue 18 months too late. Like This needed to happen when the ideas boom was first getting off the ground right. and you need to be in there providing advocacy and sure, some startups may need government assistance in purely to regulate themselves into existence because I do understand there are some startups that need tweaks and changes in, in financial regulation, particularly if you want to be on the ASX. Yeah. You've got to make sure that your ducks are in a row. So in that sense, I do understand government has a role to play. But where was everyone 18 months ago when we were literally doing their jobs for you to say these are the five things you need to pay attention to? Mm-hmm. Now all of the glosses come off the wall. You know, Turnbull's gone quiet, Wyatt Roy has gone walkabout overseas, right, right. Um, and <laughs> yes. uh, while... Okay, who now has the banner in government? Is there anyone we can look at, and I'm trying very hard not to look at Greg Hunt, who is going to be carrying the banner for startups in this government? Who is the new cybersecurity minister? Well, Minister Daladakis in Victoria has done a fantastic job. Yes, you know, he in has. Attracting so is, world it, is class it now down to the states? Leaders. And my sense is that there's more um, fungible budget within the states mm-hmm. to mm. really focus on developing centres of excellence like uh, Daladakis has done um, in Victoria with the cybersecurity, really kind of from a global perspective. Mm. Um, than there is at a at a federal level. So we That's have to look, sense. we have to look at Deladakis. We have to look at Dominello um, and uh, at the, the Queensland minister, who's also been going great guns. So we really are need to start well, looking look, at the states. Well, look, there's been a lot. There's been a lot of announcements, and I think having spent a bit of time in the U.S. and Israel and and the U.K. earlier this year, the thing we have to be very mindful of as a country is if we're fighting for territory and cutting banners on a state-by-state basis, we're really not elevating ourselves to be a sophisticated place and attracting great talent to come and start businesses here. Very few of the conversations that I had in all of those countries were focused on Australia being a centre of intellect, technology and business was very much around a holiday destination. And I think um, we really need to all work together to elevate the country internationally as a place to come. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci with a few words about Twista's series sponsors, Braintree, code for easy online payments. Entrepreneurs around the world have used Braintree as a simple way to accept PayPal, credit cards, debit cards, and whatever's coming next. With a single scalable integration, you get robust fraud protection on over 130 currencies around the world, making your global expansion a snap. And using Braintree, it's as easy as integrating a few lines of code, getting your business up and running fast. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com slash twista. And we're back talking to Laura McKenzie and Claire Connolly. It's the new special. Segment two is all about investment. And we have seen, just even today, huge funds 
growing. So Airtree VC has now got a quarter billion dollar fund. That's sort of come out of nowhere. And just today in the AFR, there's the launch of the Element 8 fund, which is apparently got John Scully mm-hmm. and... Yes, was as investors in that fund was one of my heroes. And so that's another quarter billion dollar fund. Laura, what is going on here? Well, I think people will have realized that it's all about the new economy. If you you know go to any private investment um, firm and people are talking about asset allocation, they're all inc- significantly increasing their allocation to alternatives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as bonds become less attractive, property becomes less attractive, particularly the SX20 becomes less attractive and so many people's portfolios are hugely concentrated there. And so I think alternatives are the way of the future mm-hmm. and investing in early stage or development stage technology businesses is the place to go. Um, you know, more than a billion dollars has been raised by large funds in the last year in Australia, so not only the Airtree Fund, but 300 million from SquarePeg, which is Paul Bassett's fund, yeah. 200 million from Blackbird, Blackbird. Uh, another 100 million from One Ventures, you know, another 100 million from people like Blue Sky, Rampersand, some others. Syro talking about launching a 200 million dollar fund. Syro are yes, wow. um, and of course, you know, we're very focused on the software space here, but Brandon have a 200 million dollar biotech fund um there's also all these early stage venture capital limited partnership funds uh, like the sprout x ag tech fund 10 million dollars yeah. so there's probably about another 500 million in the works there so i would say all up there's probably two billion dollars worth of allocated capital that's going to be invested in this in this sector over the next five to ten years the fund life ten is is tending to be cl- it always historically was always 10 years mm. but i think with um a lot of people investing at that pre-IPO stage, trying to fit into the kind of significant investor visa for China and having four and five year funds. Um, you know, so that's really putting an average of $200 million to work a year. Mm-hmm. And I think that is great for all parts of the environment from the very early stage up to the companies that are looking for 15 to 50 million. Right, which brings us to Canva, which has just raised 15 million. So we now have this sort of, I guess, it's a tr- it's starting to turn into a true ecosystem where it's not just a few scattered players at a few mm. scattered points but there's a true gradient from smaller funds like scale mm. like the sprout x fund all the way up to an air tree or uh, the element eight fund at the sort of very top end so i assume then that that's a good thing for a startup because at every stage in their growth they know where they can turn for that next level absolutely and i also think there's a lack of distinction um, between where a fund starts and ends. You know, in all of the large funds, they'll have an allocation to kind of look and see and place a few smaller mm. bets. So, you know, even within these kind of 200, plus, 200 million dollar plus funds, they are going to be placing bets at the 100, 200K mark to really get a seat at the table. So it's it's an interesting space. We're certainly seeing a lot more deal flow than we saw 12 months ago and just... Light are you seeing more competition for that deal flow because there are more investors at the table mm. now? Do you do you feel like scale sort of is under, I guess, more pressure mm. to make a decision around that? Oh, I think both sides of the marketplace have grown tremendously. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think it's really important for any investor and entrepreneur to find the right partner. Um, You know, it's very much like finding your life partner. So um, I would expect there to be competition. And you want to make sure that you've got great rapport and you're going to enjoy working with these people. (laughs) Because you will be working with them. Okay, so I guess then, is this... I'm not so much a bubble, but is this a growth phase that we're going to pass out of or will we continue to see another a couple of hundred million dollars enter in funds over the next several years? I mean, we already have now this $200 million a year mm-hmm. locked in sort of over the next five years because of the funds that exist now. Yeah. But if we look out five years, will we have seen another two or $300 million per year also enter? If there are some successful exits in that time, Absolutely. And you know, there was a lot of money in the venture space in from two thousand and five to two thousand and seven and right. and then the super funds retreated and it's super exciting to see them coming back in. Um but really the market needs to see returns yes. for them to stay in. And I think a, a five to ten year period is know a realistic time frame for that to happen and it just goes to show you don't necessarily need a government authorized ideas boom it looks as though the industry is doing a pretty good job of it on its own would you agree yeah what what are the companies that are queued up for big exits probably in the next two years if you're had as an investor what would you expect well i mean you're talking about canva i think a lot of people expect that to be a a unicorn and because it has taken external funding Mm -hmm. and those investors are in structured funds those fund managers will need to position themselves for an exit of course there's other fantastic companies out there like Envato which haven't taken on board on board um, external capital and and so the pressure to exit is is not there so it really depends what you want to measure by right so we may have a unicorn that is in a sense undeclared because it's not a public company you know which is really roughly what uh, Atlassian was until December last year, yes. right? So okay, all right. But we can we can sort we can definitely see that there's a pipeline of unicorn-like things here, so that some of those investors will be seeing some returns. Yeah, I, I, I think so, and I think it it does take time. You know, we often start seeing people in the media when the reality is they've been running with their startup for five, six, seven, maybe 10 years. And then all of a sudden they're the new startup in town yeah. when, um, you know, <laughs> they've actually been, been under the work. radar for, for a long time. And I think that that's really important that we actually see execution and operational results. You know, zero, for example, took a long time, seemed to be really overpriced in the market. Mm six, seven years ago, mm-hmm. um, and was reading in the press today that 49% of small businesses use zero now, yeah. and that number is just escalating month on month. Yeah. This is, I think, an amazing time to be a startup because there are so many options to go get money. Is it also the most exciting time to be an investor in Australian startups? I've been investing in Australian startups for six years now. It's certainly been the most exciting time Mm. in those six years. Okay, so 2016 is actually one for the record books, you you think, in that sense. Hopefully 2017 will be even better. Let's not put a ceiling on it, Mark. No, and I'm not trying to put a ceiling on it. I'm just trying to say, I suppose, glory in the moment of it right now that things are, in fact, well. 
they're going well in the investment They're going space. in the right direction. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci, and I'm inviting you to come by and visit our Tumblr at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. We have all sorts of great stuff there. We have photos of the guests. We have links to the articles we mention on this podcast in particular, and all sorts of old podcasts from other guests, articles, just all sorts of information that entrepreneurs are going to want to get stuck into if they listen to the show. So please come by twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. And we're back. It's the new special with Laura and Claire. All right, segment three, sexism in tech. Now, Here's a really cool thing. I was sitting at the cafe with one of my best friends. The new issue of Vogue, the October issue of Vogue had just arrived and there was a huge section in the middle of it called Vogue Code. And it's article after article about women, including supermodels, we will add, who are into STEM and are learning how to code and teaching people coding. And I flip and of course there's Annie Parker you know, and I was really, really happy to see that. She's been a guest on this show. She's doing amazing work. And I was like, okay, this is this is what we need. This is exactly it, you know, because for so long it's been seen as masculine and this and the other thing. No, actually, let's put it right into vogue and make it sexy in all the ways that women want it. Um, Claire, does journalism need to lead the way on a lot of this? I should certainly think so. I would hazard a caution to buzzwords like STEM and STEAM, though, I think... We really need to focus on what the Australian marketplace needs mm -hmm. and what the economy needs. And I think whether you're looking at a startup or a big corporate or a SMB or something in between those three, the biggest issue in Australian business will remain the following. Cost of labor, mm -hmm. tax, and competitive rates with overseas workers, as well as other competitors that they're competing with both lo locally and abroad. You need to do something to make it attractive for investors to come down here. Mm -hmm. You need to make it attractive for workers to come and fill in the gaps that Australian workers can't provide. You need to massively and quickly upscale the Australian community, not just from a primary and high school level, but you also need to engage with people whose skills are no longer being recognised by the current economy. And For example, everyone who's just been laid off down in Victoria, and in fact, Phil Morrill over at Pollinizer has set up a whole boot camp for them so they can retrain. So yeah. you're right. Yeah. And for example, we've just invested in a battery technology company that can license that technology. Having a plant set up in that area of Victoria mm. where there is a significant high tech workforce yes um yeah. i think would be cars fantastic. are not cars cars are very high-tech devices so anyone who's been on an assembly line is familiar with high-tech yeah. assembly you're right mm. and particularly senator ludlam and i think also ed husick last year spoke briefly about australia maybe becoming a provider of technology for smart cars mm. for example now you need to very quickly skill up your workforce if Australia is to become a provider in that industry. Okay, but let, let's tie this back in. Are we going to be skilling up the women in the workforce the same way we're skilling up the men in the workforce? That's, I think that's the open question right now. 
Well, I think it was. It's interesting in Melinda Gates's recent letter, and you know her move outside of the Gates Foundation um, to establish her own personal office dedicated mm. to understanding how we can get get and retain Mm -hmm. more women in technology and you know when she graduated from computer science i think in 87 38 percent of graduates were were women and now the number is half that Mm. that that was just when it was starting to fall off yeah and i read an interesting article um saying is there a link in this between the move from computer games which i remember designing kind of coding games on my zx spectrum and atari when i was about 10 years old you know, they all suddenly became very war and combat focused. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's where kind of the interest in girls right. further developing their code skills fell off. And it's certainly not something that I continue, continue doing. In the early 60s and mid 70s, um, computer skills and IT were positioned as the place where women would go in the workforce yeah. once mm-hmm. sort of industrialization fell off a little bit. Yeah. And, my, and my aunt was writing software, firmware for missiles for NASA in mm-hmm. 1960. So, yeah. Well, Ada Lovelace, for example. The pioneer in space. So, um, you know, I think women increasingly will play more and more of a role. And things like, um, you know, we talked about other areas of competitive advantage for Australia. There's been a lot of talk about renewable energy policy mm. after the blackout in <laughs> South Australia last week. Yes. But actually, from a global perspective, there's some fantastic projects underway in Australia and we're really kind of on the front foot there. This is where we really, if we play our cards right, we really can have a global leading position mm-hmm. um, in the use of renewables and the mainstreaming of renewables. And I think those are all great initiatives that the various state governments have to move to renewable energy. And again, this is STEM that's not just focusing on code, but it's this is chemistry, this is engineering, this is manufacturing, this is a whole set of other Well, well I also think, and I see this in the deal flow that presents to scale, women tend to start businesses that they're solving real social problems that are going to change the world and renewable energy is thinking very global now but that is that is very much in in that spirit taking it back to how we train up women I mean, when I was in university, which was around about the time that the drop-off in female IT participation occurred, and one of the biggest problems that was identified by my alma mater was the fact that a lot of the guys going into IT and computer engineering courses were more skilled than the course required them to be because they were in some way self-trained or Mm self-taught because they'd been working across this technology for maybe slightly longer than their female co-parts. The women come in and say, I'm interested in computers, I know a little bit about code, I would like to pursue a career in this if I can upskill. But what happens is, though the course level says you only need a basic knowledge of this particular subset of, mm-hmm. of, of skills, we'll teach you what you need to know, because half the class are male and all half the class are going, oh, we already know this, the teachers then turn around and say, if you're not across this now, you're not going to have what it takes to complete this class. And right. the biggest amount of dropouts that were occurring were women in the first week of class because they had been explicitly told by somebody that they didn't have what it takes to complete the module. And so within 15 years, you get this massive drop-off in female workforce participation because the slightest sign of discouragement, they run for the hills because somebody that they respect told them that 
it's just going to be too much for them to do. Now, when you have these kind of attitudes permeating workforces, permeating universities, where it's just like, oh, look, we just don't have the time to train you up. If you're not across this now, you're never going to be and we don't have these kind of resources. You've got to take that away for a start. That's got to go. I'm not very comfortable with gendered education, but certainly talking to people on their level in a way that they can acquire skills in a short period of time that's what we need to focus on. Well, one of the interesting things, and I'm, I'm doing a lot of work in VR these days, and it's interesting mm. because VR actually seems almost to be tilted more toward women in positions, which is, I'm, I'm really happy mm. about this because, and it was like that 20 years ago, by the way. Mm. You know, the people who were doing the best creative works were women. It wasn't men. And so I'm wondering if some of this is maybe an, a, a tide, and the tide will turn not around the technologies of yesterday the last technologies but around the next technologies that we're going to have so renewables mm -hmm. virtual reality iot things like this where the next generation is actually going to be so it's more of a of a sea change that has to do with the technology change yeah i absolutely agree and with women making most of consumer decisions mm. having um a gender-based team makes absolute sense um you know, i noticed that the apple health app for example um you could measure all kinds of things but you can't measure men's menstruation right. or your, your cycle, which, you know, is on every woman's mind. Right. Of course. So that just seemed really weird to me. Bizarre. But it, it's designed by the same guy who designed a staircase that you can see up of. I mean, nobody ever thought about what would happen when I walk up a staircase because nobody's going to look up my trousers. Right. Right, but it's but it's it's gendered design. It's that simple. You're listening to this week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci, and we're starting to get ready for Series Five around here. And if you would like to be an advertiser in Series Five and reach thousands of the movers and shakers, the investors, the entrepreneurs, the folks who make the startup community in Australia run, then you need to be advertising on this show. So if you'd like to do that, please drop me an email at mpesce at gmail.com. Thank you. And we're back with Laura and Claire. This is the grab bag segment. So Claire, you wanted to talk a little bit about the value of publicity for people who are working in technology. Could you talk about that for a minute? There has been some suggestion from insiders in the community, shall we say, um, that there is too close a tie to coverage for your startup and um, getting investors attracted to your startup, but also getting work visas for the workers that you need to come and work for your startup. Right, but I mean, some of that, the first part of that sort of makes sense. If you're getting coverage, and we, you know, we can argue the value of it, but it's going to make the investor think you're more real. I, I would assume, Laura, that if you see an article in the AFR or something, and I know when I see someone I know who's got a startup in the AFR, I'm like, good on them, because it, it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's a badge of, yes. Yeah, they're all data points. Right. Absolutely. Um, but I, I think this comes down to a perception issue. A strong fourth estate shouldn't be the place that you go to try and get publicity coverage for your startup because the strong fourth estate shouldn't be interested in the fandangled, shiny new entrant into the marketplace if only to point out the things that it's done wrong or is currently doing wrong. And when 
Startups and businesses begin clamoring for press coverage. It degrades the coverage for a start. Okay. It creates an unnecessary climate of fear and it sometimes has the impact of pitting publications and journalists against the people that they're writing about. I'll give you an example. Yeah. About a year ago, I covered an event. I won't name it mm-hmm. um, because the person who ran this event threatened to sue me. Now, two weeks after the event finished... They decided they didn't like what I'd run. But instead of calling me up and having a conversation about it, what they did was go back and edit the invite invitation to say strictly no media. Now, this is a fortnight after the event was finished, an event that I had been invited to to cover and sat in the front row. So they basically stuck it in the memory hole. Stuck it in the memory hole, edited their own invitation, and then wrote to the publication saying, we never authorized this story. This journalist snuck into this event, got all of this data... And then published it without our permission. I lost a writing gig from that Mm. because publications are so risk-averse now that they'll pull anything at the drop of a hat. Now, I can tell you I will never cover that event again. I will never work with that person again. And I will probably be quite suspect of anyone that person does business with ever again. But it has also had the effect of discouraging me, and I would imagine anyone else who has been in that situation, from covering startups. Because if you're not going to get the coverage that you want, you're going to literally force that person to lose their job. It's creating a big conflict of interest within the media. But isn't that also going to be self-limiting for them? Because those folks are not ever going to be able to get the coverage that they're going to want because they've burned someone in the media. I mean, Australia's a small market. You can only burn so many journalists and there's no one left to burn, right? I mean, there is that. But the, the other question is, what is this person doing in their business that the rest of the marketplace will never find out about yeah, because yeah. everyone's too afraid to ever write about them yeah. again. And if this is how you're going to behave with a journalist, it makes me very questionable about how you're running your business. Yeah, or how you're going to deal with your investors who you have to be transparent with, yeah. But back to the fourth estate, the point of the fourth estate is to point out something that is in the public interest. Yeah. yeah. That is miles away from the AFR putting numbers on your balance sheet. Mm-hmm. That is not the AFR's job. It is not my job. It is not the job of any publication that is out there producing quality journalism. And I think we really need to address the way that startups and business more generally look at a headline. Because a headline shouldn't be the thing that puts value on your company. That is a really, really, really good point. But not you also touched on something around work visas. So how, does, how do work visas feed into this whole cycle of publicity? So in Australia, the R1 visa... And there is another visa, and I forget the name. It's something along the lines of special talent visa. It is the special talent visa. That is how I got into this country. So special talent visas are for people like Mark, but also for people like Kanye. You know, you have to be like an entertainer. I am not like Kanye. Let's just point that out. Hey, Kanye is brilliant in his own way. But that's a conversation for another podcast. Um, But... It means that you have a skill that isn't necessarily something that you can learn at a university. It means you either, you're a CEO, you own a startup, you've launched a startup, your startup or or business has received coverage. Now, there are some very successful business people that have tried to come to this company who are already making millions and millions of dollars, who, for lack of press coverage, didn't qualify for that particular visa. Now, I have an issue with press coverage getting anyone a visa anywhere for anything. But if it's a requirement, then it's kind of baked it in. Yeah, I mean, that is creating a big problem in how businesses and startups approach the press, and it will have the knock-on effect of affecting how journos cover 
the startup well, as well. Well, it's forcing everyone into a situation that they wouldn't normally need to enter. There are so many conflicts of interest here. It is just fraught. Okay, final question for the panel. What's up with the killer clowns? <laughs> I would be happy if we never discuss clowns ever again. If no one ever wrote about clowns, never see clowns. It's, I think it's because it is being remade. So I have this theory that it's probably all just a really clever publicity stunt for the film. Maybe there's a way we can put an extra layer on Pokemon to... Can we, like, catch the killer clowns and unmask them? Yeah, Pokemon it. (laughs) Certainly there's enough big data in the world that we can help identify these people. Stop parading our streets with fear, you clowns! (laughs) And on that note, big thanks to Laura and... Claire, thank you for coming on and making this a very, very wonderful new special. No problem. Good to be back. Always a pleasure. Big thanks to Twister Sponsors Braintree because their support makes this podcast possible. Thanks to Felix Walmuth and AnalogCabin.net for his hard work creating a podcast that is consistently wonderful to listen to. Thanks again to Laura and Claire for making the time to come on the show. We are back in a fortnight. We're going to be talking to an entrepreneur who has figured out the future of media, and she's figured out that it's older and wiser than many people believe. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia.